0: Listener Production. When you're growing up and you can't see yourself, it's impossible to be yourself. So there wasn't a lot of hope. And I lived for such a long period of my life, feeling like there's just no way in hell I'm going to make it that far. I will not become an adult, you know?
1: Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we're curious to get to know and understand. There might be tears as well as laughter as we celebrate the real life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. Sean Zepps is a proud gay father of twins. He calls himself a professional ranter and he's also a popular content creator, sharing his life on social media. Sean also hosts an award-winning podcast called Come
0: Out Wherever You Are. Hi, my name is Sean Zepps, and I am on a mission to find out what it's really like to come out as a member of the LGBTQIA community. So I'm so excited to share with you Come Out Wherever You Are, a rare opportunity to jump back in the closet with members of our community and trace their journey from coming to terms with their sexuality and all of the lessons that they picked up along their journey to this microphone. I'm already
1: one of his biggest fans on Insta and I was excited to pick his big brain about parenthood, identity and love. Oh, Sean, I feel like I know you already because I've been following you on Insta and I just love everything that you do.
0: Thank you so much. That's so nice of you.
1: Oh, and as well, I have to say, I mean, I love you, but my younger sister is your biggest fan.
0: Oh, really? She
1: just thinks you're amazing.
0: Oh, that's really nice.
1: She reckons your style of parenting is very like mine. Mm. She says, Sean is like you. But in a man's body.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: So I liked that, that me as well. Too.
0: That's why I'm connected to you so much. That's why I'm drawn to you. I'm like, is it me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's the colour.
0: Mm, colour, definitely.
1: Because you're wearing beautiful color and we're in sync. I mean, we're, we're twins. wearing the same kind of colours here. And also from you exudes joy. Mm,
0: thank you. And fun. Hmm. That's nice. I don't know if often hear that. That's really, really? great. Yeah. How I guess the focus is not normally on me, to be honest.
1: (laughs) But who's the focus on then?
0: The children, maybe like the work we're doing, the crafting we're doing, the conversation I'm having... I'll hear nice things about that's an interesting approach. Uh, That's an intellectual. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Uh, It's great that you're talking about this. It's more intellectual usually. And in the podcast space or in a lot of the work I do, it's usually about the person I'm talking about. I really try to remove myself if I can. So it's nice to kind of hear what people are thinking about my energy.
1: Oh, but it is, to me, your energy, it does exude fun and Mm. and costumes, because this is also, I think, where I like to connect with you. You rock a
0: costume. I love to dress up. I love to play. Exactly. Mm. Where does that come from? It probably comes like the earliest memory I can think of is Halloween. One of the great benefits of growing up in America is that Halloween is built into the fabric of the culture. And everyone does it, right? I mean, like millions and millions and millions and millions of people. I think the last time I checked, it's like 41 million people trick or treat each year. So from a very early age, my parents are crafters, they're creators, they builders, they build our homes, they built our, you know, sewed our clothes, they made everything. And so when I would ask for a Halloween costume, best memory I can think of is I asked to be a toilet. (laughs) I was like, can I be a toilet seat, please? And they didn't say, oh, Sean, let's go to Walmart and get whatever. They're like, okay. Let's figure out how to make it. So they got the cardboard boxes and they cut the holes and they went to Home Depot, which is like America's Bunnings. And they bought the toilet seat and they bought the handle and they put the bag inside the toilet seat so that I would have to lift it up and people would put candies inside of it. That early memory is not necessarily about self-expression, it's about support. You can be supported in your self-expression and then to walk around and have people be like, you're unique, you're innovative, you're special. That made me feel great. Wow, I'm standing out. And I think that early memory is more about you don't have to do things that everyone else does. And when you do it, you can be rewarded for it. And what's great about Americans' relationship to Halloween is that it never stops. It's not just for children. It seeps into adulthood. So Americans have that reputation of um, dress-up parties all the time. And so I guess I never lost it. Like when I go to an event, for example, I'm not thinking like, what's the outfit I can wear? I'm like, who's the character? Am I going to go for a 1920s human today? That means my hair needs to be styled a different... Okay, I got to go buy specific gel. I need to do research to figure out the entire look. I'm a vibe. I'm an energy. That's what I'm thinking about. It's not just the clothes. And so, yeah.
1: Listening to you talk about your parents, Mm. it sounds like that was a real gift that they gave you.
0: Yeah. Their like parenting philosophy was always yes and. like Anything we asked, they wanted to figure out ways to support. And that seeped its way into my identity and my sexuality and my coming to terms with who I am and who I was. But it really just, in every facet of our life, there was just like support. Whatever you want to do, we're going to figure it out for you. We're going to give you a a lot of access to things. And because they did everything with their hands, there was really never uh, an impediment to achieving anything. It wasn't about money. We didn't have that, but they were like, okay, you're jealous of a friend who has X outfit. We're going to make it tomorrow with all of the same fabrics. You're going to do it on your own. If you want something, you are in charge of getting it. And I just feel like, yeah, that really affected the way that I grew up because I always just thought anything is possible. I can be anything. I can make anything happen for myself. I don't need somebody else. I don't need money. I don't need to have a specific family. And I think, yeah, I, that obviously has had a huge impact on who I am as an adult because I kind of feel like. I can do absolutely anything. The world is my oyster.
1: And it is your oyster. Mm. I think that's also why people love you because you're very open Mm. about life, your struggles, questioning things, Mm. even your insecurities. Just the other day you were posting a thing about modelling in some Speedos. Yes, that's right. But you wrote in such a moving way on your socials about – how confronted you felt and you didn't think you would feel Mm. confronted having to model in cozies.
0: Yeah. that's. I'm really happy you brought that up because I'm still quite anxious about it. So I guess we get to talk about it while it's still raw for me, which is the body positivity movement, which is like one of the absolute best parts of social media, right? Are unbelievable advocates in this country and all around the world who are speaking up about terrible marketing practices that have made all humans of shapes and sizes feel terrible but it's usually focused on women right it, even the literature is written as if it is a woman's problem young girls are affected only and the reality is when you go to the gym well, who do you see these men just trying desperately to build these muscles but there aren't a lot of creators that talk about what happens when you look like me? I am not muscular and I'm not skinny. I fall in the middle. When I first moved to Australia, I experienced gay Sydney culture, which was a gay guy walking up to me and being like, you need to gain weight or lose it. You can't be stuck in the middle. And it really just messed with me. It messed with me for years. Like I'm five years on from that moment. And when I look in the mirror, I think you can't be stuck in the middle. I just constantly hear it. My job is to, you know, I create content for brands and I love it more than anything. But when Milo approached me, I thought, oh my God, it's Milo. (laughs) An authentic, Aussie, iconic brand. I'm going to say yes. And I never thought about the fact that I'd have to wear a Speedo and show what my body looks like. That's not something that I do. I would never, ever show the top of my body on Instagram. And then it happened and I realized, oh my goodness, I'm so anxious about this because I know that I don't look like what you're supposed to look like in a Speedo. And by supposed to, I put in air quotes, I don't look like the men who feel comfortable sharing. I don't look like the people who get put in the magazines. I don't look like the men who make their way to the TV ads. I just look- Like you. Like You look like you. I look like me, you know? And so, yeah, articulating that, I think it's incredibly important to show the various sides of me. And I don't always do a very good job because I get consumed by I'm an anxious person. I've had anxiety since I was 10. I have been on and off medication, in and out of therapy. It's a fundamental part of who I am. It is my superpower. And I love talking about it, but I don't always show what's happening in the moment. I usually talk about it after I'm feeling better. And so I was freaked out. Oh my goodness, people are going to see me. Oh my God, people are going to judge me. Oh my God, my boobs. Oh my God, no abs. Oh my God, no muscles. And I had this moment of like, what's the point of having this audience if you can't just talk about your insecurities in those moments? Called the girlfriend, complained, I'm stressed, I'm worried. And she said, Why don't you just talk about that? You don't have to have the answer. You don't have to have the perfect thing about like encouraging people to feel better about yourself. You don't always have to have the full stop at the end of the sentence. Sometimes you can just talk halfway through the sentence. And that was really inspiring.
1: And by doing that as well, what you do so beautifully is that you make other f- people feel understood mm. and okay. Mm. Okay in their skin.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. I've definitely felt consumed and I'm sure so many people can relate to this. Social media is filled with people with answers. The people on the other side, right? They finish the journey and they're like, you should feel good about yourself because blank. And they always have the Z at the end of the X, Y, Z. And I... I'm often like my anxiety lives in the interim. It's like in the middle, I'm consumed by the past and the future and I'm stuck in the present and I don't feel that I can share what's going on in the present. And so when you're feeling just anxiety, when you're just consumed by nerves, you think in this world of social, especially because I have an audience, if I don't have an answer that's gonna make them feel better, why share it? That is, I think, what consumes a lot of creators and a lot of artists. I'm gonna put something out into the world. I hope that it can make it better and sometimes by sharing just the anxiety i was worried maybe people were going to go and what so what do i do with this if this person who i think looks fantastic is really anxious then you know and then fill in the ends of that sentence with all the anxieties or worries so it was nice to be able to just like put out into the world i think that's the power of social is you can actually just share and you don't always have to have the answers and maybe someone else can connect i'm on that journey too and maybe that is the answer maybe that is the bow on the package it's just like okay you know what, you can just be anxious and still post it and not feel better afterwards, just still be anxious.
1: And also, life, we can never tie up in a beautiful bow. Mm. It is messy by its very nature. Mm. And there are a bazillion different answers. And to me, again, I think that's where the beauty lies. And you talk about anxiety being your superpower. Mm -hmm. I think also that is almost the power sometimes in feeling vulnerable and anxious.
0: You're right. Absolutely. And I mean, that is, I guess what I mean by it being a superpower is it humanizes you because it is a part of who you are. There are so many people that struggle with anxiety. It allows my fight or flight to be constantly on alert. As a creator, it opens up an avenue for me to make. That anxiety is what inspires me to create. And so when I'm really anxious about something, I'm reminded that that's probably an anxiety that other people have that is when I make, that is when I create. When I'm not anxious, I find it very difficult to make and create because there's not like an insight, a truth, a human truth for me to speak on behalf of. And so I think the fact that for so long, it was this like dirty word, this embarrassing thing, this thing I didn't want to talk about, I didn't want to talk about medication. I felt like I had failed all that jazz. Therapy meant that I was weak. And then once you own that and you go, actually, this is who I really am. In a world of like pristine social media accounts where everyone looks perfect. They're lying. They are absolutely lying. (laughs) And in that world where you step into that and you go, actually, this is how I really feel. That's all actually anyone really cares about. That's when I connect. That's when my audience grows. That's when I'm able to actually make connections with people. That's the social part of social is being able to go, actually, this is me too. And that makes... Being online for a living, which is a very silly job. Silly in the sense that you're dealing with trolls and it, it, especially as a homosexual, you're dealing with a lot of negativity. That makes it worthwhile. That makes me want to get up and go on the platform each day.
1: How do you deal with the negativity?
0: I don't. <laughs> Ooh. I uh, uh, set up alerts in the platform that hide the terrible words from me so that I don't have access to that. I go to therapy to make sure that I am sound and in a good mental headspace. I surround myself with people who love and support me. I create a community that I feel safe in. If people come and infiltrate that space with negativity, I remove them immediately. There are a lot of creators who don't agree with that policy. They approach it like you're in a town square performing and you have put a notebook and you've asked everyone for their feedback. But how I approach it is this, that's my home. That's me as the brand, as the person. If I met you in real life and you walked right up to me and called me a slur, I don't have to put up with that. That's crazy. I don't have to just because of my job allow you to speak to me that way. There are two choices I can address you head on and try to change your mind or at least come to a conclusion or I am allowed for my mental health to walk away from you. And so I guess I just like use the tools at my disposal that the platforms allow you to have to make it feel like a safer workspace for me.
1: Which I think is such good advice for people listening too. Mm. I just block. Yeah. I, I feel very empowered when I just go, block, delete. I don't need you to take up any more yeah. of your, don't put your negativity and awfulness onto me yeah. or my life.
0: You're so right. And people like us who have had the fortune and misfortune of having your words and face and opinions be subject to thousands or hundreds of thousands or sometimes millions of, of eyeballs and, and perspectives learn quite quickly the reality of the human experience. We all live in insular bubbles, don't we? We uh, grow up, I grew up in a small town, thousands of people, and that was just my little bubble. And so it's easy when you surround yourself by close friends or just families or people in your little town or network to forget that not everyone thinks the same, not everyone agrees about things. A beautiful gift is coming to terms with the reality of that human makeup, which is that not everyone agrees on things and that is okay. And so for me to be a gay man in a country and a gay father in a country where there aren't a lot of gay fathers, there are definitely not a lot of gay fathers in the media space. You kind of show up to work with that understanding. Not everyone is going to be okay with this. And if you are reminding yourself of that, it is absolutely easier to deal with the trolls because then you go, okay, uh, where did they come from? What is their background? Who are they? Why do they disagree with it? And that's okay. They don't have to agree with that. That's fine. I don't probably don't agree with a lot of things they do.
1: And who wants to? Exactly, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye, you know. See you later. Yeah. Tell me, I want to talk more about your experience as you describe it as a gay dad Mm. living in Sydney. You've got two beautiful kids, Stella and Cooper. Yeah. What's it like being a dad?
0: I love being a father. I'm enjoying it a lot more now, later into the journey. The first couple years with twins in a brand new country with no support system and no career and no friends was not enjoyable. (laughs) I would not recommend that to anyone. Now that I'm like five years into the journey and the kids are older and I've established myself and I have a network of friends, I love it. I think five-year-olds are fantastic. Uh, It's better than when they were four and it's better than when they were three. They're humans that I can engage with and talk to. I'm further into the journey now, so I've worked out the kinks of what I can do with them that I enjoy, that they also enjoy. I really do believe that that sweet spot, I always credit Mark Vanell for this, but like finding the Venn diagram of things you love and your children love, and then whatever meets in the middle are probably the moments that they'll remember and you'll enjoy. So I just seek those things out. And for the first couple of years, I wasn't doing that. So yeah, I'm loving being a father. But the first part of your question, like being a gay dad in this country... I had a inference, a hypothesis before I moved here, an understanding based off of like global press of what it was going to be like to be gay in this country. And to be honest, because Mardi Gras is so popular here, oftentimes from outside of the country, it's like, oh, well, this will be like the most accepting place ever. That is like what I thought. So when I stepped foot in Sydney, I thought it was going to be really gay and really accepting and that Sydney Siders would have a ton of access to queer representation. And so I would just be like a blip on their radar, which is what it was like for me to live in LA and live in New York. It's like, people did not care. You're just one of many. And there are so many people who came before you that people already said partner. People already expected that children might have a dad or a mom or one parent or two, whatever. And so when I stepped onto this land, it was a rude awakening for me that that's not actually the case. Uh, I think we are a lot further along today than we were five years ago when the marriage vote was happening. But I have been met many a times with people who have never met anyone like me, who have never experienced any parent structure like ours, who knew gay people and of, of course had met gay people and had gay friends, but had never met a gay parent before. And so in the parenting world, school drop-off activities, birthday parties, the playground, the playground, people just expect that my children have a mother. They expect if I'm dressed like I am today, then they think I'm the nanny or the babysitter. They just cannot equate someone who looks like me, talks like me, acts like me, is married to someone like me to parenthood. And so that was like a that's a challenging road for me. I couldn't find a mother's group.
1: And does that make you angry though? I mean, you saying that you couldn't find a mother's group. I mean, being a parent mm. is so hard. Mm. And I can't even begin to imagine if then there's a part of you that feels like people are not seeing you yeah. in that role.
0: It definitely made me angry in the beginning. Like those first couple of years, I felt duped. I was like, how can this country that does so well? you know, at this one time a year of not just allowing queer people to walk down the street, but like putting money behind it, having big, huge businesses with the rainbow flags in their front, televising it consistently on the public broadcaster, you know, um, Courtney Act, like great exports that made their way around the world. I just thought, how can a country like that not have stronger representation in the parenting space? Because the reality is we know that all families look very different And yet, if you are one of the minority parents, you're not often seeing yourself on television or in radio. And that's problematic. And that is setting other parents up for failure. They're not coming at me to harm me. They just have a script in their head. And that script is constantly affirmed. So every single time they say to a child, where's your mom? It's just, it's always, you know, they always get what they want. They always get that, you know, positive response. And so- yeah, I was disappointed and I was a little bit angry. I do remind myself, I grew up in a time, as you did, as every, probably every single person listening to this, where it was not legal for me to get married. We didn't talk about our sex lives. AIDS was running rampant through my childhood. And so there was a justified negative narrative around what it meant to be a gay person. And you most definitely, without a doubt, were not having children. And so I try to remind myself that I am blessed to be around in a time where all of this is possible, but I am the first generation without, like the day it became legal in this country was the day Josh and I were married because we were married abroad. And that means we are the first group of Aussies that are gay to be able to get married like that. And
1: now the official results of the Australian marriage law Postal survey.
0: For the national result, yes responses 7,817,237.
1: The Australian people have spoken in their millions and they have voted overwhelmingly yes for marriage equality. They voted yes for fairness, they voted yes for commitment. They voted
0: yes for love. So how can I expect that everyone is going to be up to speed on that? I can't. And so I just try to remind myself I'm in a better place now that when someone says the wrong thing or they just expect that I must have a wife or they expect that my children have kids, that they just don't have examples to hold on to and I just need to be one of those examples.
1: It's very evolved and grown up of you to describe it in that way.
0: Mm. When you're a young queer person in this world, you're forced to grow up pretty damn quick, aren't you? Like, that's just the rude reality of my lived experience. It's like, you got two choices. (laughs) You either like find the positive in it so that you can survive or you don't survive. Like, those are your two paths forward. And I think I didn't like want to be an advocate. I'd like to just be a father if that's possible. But that's just not an option. And I feel like, yeah, it definitely forces you to like put your big kid pants on real fast. So for your children, it's not for me. It'd be a lot easier for me to just like curl up in a ball and not go outside. But for my kids, I don't want them to ever feel that I'm not proud of us and that they don't have a normal life. They do. Everything's the exact same. The only difference is they have two dads. And so for them- And aren't they lucky? Yes.
1: Aren't they lucky? <laughs> yeah,
0: they are. You're right.
1: They're so lucky. mm mm-hmm. Because it's about love, isn't it? It's about unconditional love and kids knowing that they're heard and seen Mm. and just loved.
0: Absolutely. I think it's a beautiful gift. It's a beautiful gift to have access to something different. It's a beautiful gift because it breeds empathy and sympathy and it makes them better people for every other person they come in contact with because they... Are in a structure that is not defined as normal in anywhere.
1: Who I hate that word, yeah, normal, inverted
0: commas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, you
1: know, it's a quote I often use this. Um, I think he was an Austrian psychoanalyst who basically said, the only normal people are the ones you don't know very well. Yeah, it's so true. And I think that's spot on. I mean, mm. what is normal? And again, I think what is so special about you is that you share it, not only for yourself and your family, but to help people. Mm. So many other people.
0: I know that I'm going to get emotional because I always get emotional in like two spaces in my life, and this is one of them. But when I was a little kid, there was just nothing for me to grab onto. Like not a single thing for me to hold onto. Not, Not any glimmer of hope that it was possible for me to have a normal life. There were no movies. There was no television show. There was no radio. There was no books. There was nothing. All I had was headlines that said, gays are dying. And then when we were on television or we were in movies, it was as a joke. It was like two gay guys kiss and the whole audience laughs. And even when we started to find ourselves on television like Ellen, we got run out of the industry entirely. When you're growing up and you can't see yourself, it's impossible to be yourself. so there wasn't a lot of hope. And I lived for such a long period of my life feeling like there's just no way in hell I'm going to make it that far. I will not become an adult, you know? And I guess the beauty, the great gift of that is that now when I get up each day and I, like, decide, you know, what are you going to do today? What are you going to write in your book? And what stories are you going to tell online? And what are you going to do on your podcast? And, like, how are you going to make the world a better place for the next generation of queer kids? Well, I'm able to look back at that little kid and go, do it for him. And so, yeah, that's why I'm positive, And that's why I choose to advocate. And that's why I make the stories that I make. And that's why I try to be honest, even though it makes me very, very uncomfortable and anxious to think about the people hearing it or seeing me cry or seeing me get emotional because it's raw and it's real. And I'm still working through it. And I'm still not hundred percent comfortable with it, but I know that it's the right thing because I just keep thinking about that little boy in church, sitting in the pews thinking that there was no way he was going to survive that. And I did. And I have a husband and I have beautiful children and I live in a country where I can walk around and hold my husband's hand and make a living, make a living as a gay person. The one thing that made me afraid that I would not survive that little nasty three letter word that would be the reason that I can make a full living and a career and have a life. It's just wild. So that's why I do it. That is 100% who it's for. It's for myself and then the next generation of kids. So they do not grow up thinking that they don't have an option. They have a great option. And they do. Mm.
1: I think if anyone could grow up to be like you, it would be incredible. Thank you. Oh, Sean. You make me
0: <laughs> cry I, I always oh. get so emotional.
1: Oh. Well, of course, because as you say, it's so raw and real. Hearing you earlier talk about your parents who encouraged you to be you, mm. even with all of that, there was still a part of you that, that didn't feel sort of right.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Why, why do you think that is?
0: I mean, there are a lot of layers in my story. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church in a wonderful community. My family got so much out of faith and continue to get so much out of their faith. And unfortunately it will be really hard for me. And I'm still trying to unpick what happens when your entire worldview is shaped by the book and so no matter what influences i received or how many times my parents who knew that i was gay from a very young age or knew that i was not like all the other boys who constantly confirmed in my eyes with with honesty and integrity and truth like not only does god love you but we do and it does not matter all of that becomes meaningless in in a child's brain if above you is heaven and below you is hell and the truth is in the Bible, then the sentences that tell you that you are a sinner or that you will live the rest of your life in hell are so real to you that it is impossible to unpick. I just thought, well, my parents are lying because they have to, of course they have to, because the only truth is Jesus Christ and God. You know, that is what can happen to you. That is one of the downfalls potentially of being indoctrinated by that specific belief system Again, there are so many beautiful aspects of it that I do not regret any of it. But I guess as a young person in the back of my brain was just according to the truth, right? That is everything. It is what it means to be a human, past, present and future. Uh, Yeah, I guess it was just too hard for me to ever believe or unpick that, um, that I was good or that I was whole or that I wasn't a mistake. So I think that is really the foundation of, I guess, my understanding of who I was in the world. And when my mom says like, what could I have done differently? I tried so hard to make sure you understood that you were loved and that you were put on this earth for a reason and that there was nothing wrong with you. I was like, I don't know that there's anything you could have done through the lens of that. And then I guess the second part of the answer is society. You can have the most accepting home that you can run home to every day and be yourself, but you still got to go on the school bus. You still have to take the train. You still have to get in an Uber. You still have to go to work each day. And the reality is every single one of the people that you come in contact with has a different understanding of the human experience or different beliefs. And so, yeah, it as a parent, that's hard to hear. You can do everything right and your child can still struggle. You can do everything right and they can still feel that they're not accepted or understood and so it's really the battle within yourself. And what it took for me was you know, a lot of therapy and a lot of work to come to terms with who I was. When you are different, and again, in inverted commas, when you are not like everybody else, you're always going to be left feeling like an other. And that takes time. You have to grow up. You have to meet other people who are different. You have to see that it is possible to be happy. And I know now, that it is a lot easier than it was back then, just like it was easier today than it was in the 50s or the 20s. Because there are more examples for us to hold on to of people who not who aren't just saying that it's okay, that it gets better, but who genuinely are living a life that seems really happy.
1: And your life now, it is happy.
0: Absolutely. Yes, 100%. I think everything I ever wanted that seemed like handed to people because of the way that they were born, Like I have those things now and I have them by choice and I kind of I forget that a lot I think we all do that we forget what we wanted or what we thought wasn't possible and then it happens and we don't stop and smell those roses but yeah I have everything I thought I couldn't have I have now and if that's possible for a small religious boy from a small town in America then it's absolutely possible for anybody to just like seek out people that are good you'll find them and it will happen for you
1: yeah, find your people. Mm. And speaking of finding your people, you mentioned Josh, your husband, mm. and how you first laid eyes on him, didn't you, in a CD
0: bar yes. in New York City. Yes, yes, yes. But you
1: knew, didn't you say or write that you kind of knew that this was someone that was worth pursuing?
0: Yeah, I don't believe in like love at first sight because I've fallen in love at first sight so many times. I believe in like lust at first sight for sure. I was definitely attracted to him and like, but what I knew and what I describe often is knowing that someone is worth your time and effort. I think sometimes we just know instantaneously that a friendship or something romantic is worth our effort. It's worth taking seriously. It's worth putting your best foot forward. It's worth powering through uncomfortable times. It's worth setting boundaries. And when you're left feeling uncomfortable, which happens in any relationship because of inconsistencies or cultural differences, that that person is worth fighting for. I definitely knew that. With like that first night, I was like, okay, this is different. This is serious. I should try really hard. And I'm glad I did because it ended up working out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And he puts you first. I also read something where Hmm. you basically said he really make sure that you're okay, that that's top of his list.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. I do talk about that a lot. I adore him and he is absolutely the greatest thing that ever happened to me, but I usually put myself first. I'm like the put your uh, oxygen mask on first before your children. And then I put our children first and then I put my husband first. And as terrible as that might be to admit that is my reality, that is my truth, that is the order. Josh puts me first, he puts it above himself and he puts it above the children. It's like a Sean led approach to life. And I think that partially is because he had a really great role model in his father and the way that his father treated his mother. But also I am sure that a psychologist would say, when you're in a relationship with someone who's really anxious, a part of why you fall in love with them is that is that anxiety. You know, Josh met me when I was young and very anxious. And a part of the relationship that worked so well then and now is that he's a great supporter in my mental health. He is a fundamental part of my ability to power through every day. And so for him, I think that is where the love was formed in that relationship, in his support of me. And I think that's what makes our entire family work. It's what makes our structure work. It's what the kids will grow up seeing as a beautiful foundation. So he will get to continue that trend of, it doesn't matter what your gender is, but signing on for being in a relationship, this was Josh's philosophy. He said very early on, what would it look like to treat this relationship as if we were married? From the right away, he said that. Like,
1: Was that a bit scary? Um, Did you think, oh.
0: I was young and he was not. <laughs> so Josh and I have in a decade gap. Uh, and I was like 21 years old and he was 31. And so I think you just look at people who have dated a lot more and have lived a life and you think— Maybe this is just the maturity that all these young people who are attracted to older people talk about. And so it didn't freak me out. I thought, how refreshing. In a sea of young boys who just wanted to have a good time with me, here was someone who said, what would it look like if we treated this seriously? What would it look like if the moment you were unsure we talked about it? What would it look like when we were getting in an argument that we worked through the argument in real time? What would it look like if, like in the 50s, we didn't just break up? We didn't just end it. We really put the effort in to see if it was possible we could work through it. And I just thought, I'm totally going to marry this man's ass. Like, how can I trap him? <laughs> this is such a great approach. And it clearly worked. I think it's infiltrated the way that we still partner today.
1: I love that. And so when did you both decide you wanted to be parents? Did you equally think, yes, mm. we want to be a parent or?
0: No. No. We have both spoken about this separately, but basically when Josh and I met, he was like, you know, do you wanna have kids? And I was like, no, are you serious? Absolutely not. We're gay, we've been given a get out of jail free card. Straight people don't want us to have children. It's not even legal to get married when Josh and I met. So like, what what are you talking about? (laughs) That's like such a far-fetched weird thing. Gay people who have kids had them from straight marriages. That was our understanding of what it meant to be a parent. Now I can unpick that a lot of that was internalized homophobia. And I just felt like I didn't have a right to. And it was a dream that I wasn't allowed to dream growing up. It's just gonna hurt me more to want something I can't have. And so Josh was like, well, that's really sad. But over the course of multiple years and falling in love, he came around to it. And he was like, Sean is enough and I want him. So if he doesn't wanna have children, we'll figure that out. Well, then gay marriage gets passed in America. And all of a sudden, we start to see people not just marrying, but talking more openly in the media about adoption and surrogacy. And so I was like, wait a second, did I just say I didn't want it? When all along, I really did, but I just didn't think it was possible. So I said, Josh, I think I want to have kids. And he's like, well, wait a second. Now I don't. (laughs) I've worked years to get on your page. And now I believe it. Now I believe we could have this unbelievable life without children. And so it took additional years to kind of go, okay, well, what would it look like? And what would we be missing out on? And um, so, yeah, we've basically never been on the same page. It was after we got married, after gay marriage was legalized, that we decided to go down that path together on the same page.
1: And how would you describe that experience now being
0: a dad? Mm. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, for someone with anxiety, for someone who lives in an ego-driven, constant state of meanness consumed by what people are thinking about me, consumed by what I will do next, consumed by the mistakes I might make. Parenting was an opportunity to get off that speed train. I lost myself in the best way. The weight lifted off my shoulders to put focus and effort and energy on someone else was such a gift for my brain. I feel like for a lifetime, I was just lost. And I was like the main character of my movie and there was no other characters.
1: (laughs) Even when (laughs) Josh and I were dating. (laughs) I I mean, it's good to be the main character. It's lovely to, I think, to dip in and out of being the main character. Yeah,
0: you're right, 100%. That's the healthy way to approach it. I think for a lot of people who are anxious and who are probably going to be able to relate to this, even when you're in a relationship or even when you have a family, your anxiety will do whatever it takes, especially if you have social anxiety, of like eliminating any other perspective or, or opinions. It's just like so you and your way of thinking and your negative brain and whatever, however you're approaching a subject, that is the only way and no one else can think any other way. And so for, for parenthood to come along and these children who desperately need you to care for them, who can't do anything without you, oh, it was just such a beautiful gift. And so, yeah, I, I when I think about parenting now, I think about what a relief it was for me to step into that next stage of my life where I realized a lot of your anxieties and fear are just your monkey brain trying to control you. And when you step outside of that and care about someone else, you're able to give yourself such a massive, huge benefit of the doubt and relief. And what that gift gave me was also a deep understanding of my parents. So, I think it's a beautiful way to understand the circle of life. Like stepping into parenthood allows you to put into perspective what your parents went through and their parents and their parents before that. And you're reminded that they aren't actually gods. They're just people. They were just humans, just like you, who had no freaking clue what they were doing. And they were just trying their very best to keep you alive. And so, I think stepping out of my own anxiety allowed me to maybe take some of the anxiety I had about my parents and what they had done or not done and just get rid of it entirely. So, yeah, it's like such an unbelievable gift.
1: And it's freeing, mm, I think. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the thing is the reality with kids, especially little kids, is that they can be very boring. Yes. And the, the <laughs> grind.
0: <laughs> I'm not at all, exactly.
1: <laughs> but I know for me, my daughters are now teenagers mm. and I enjoy it more and more because I love getting to know them and the relationship that I have with them now, I enjoy them much more than I did when they yeah. were little. I mean, I'd still loved them like mad when they were small, but I struggled. I really struggled when they
0: were little. I need more people to talk about that <laughs> because it's like you get, women in particular get judged a lot when they admit that they don't like babies or they didn't like the early years. There's just so much judgment. You must love every phase of parenting. And if you don't, keep it to yourself. And I often hear people going, Oh, it's really hard, but it was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. I'm like, I know that that sentence you're saying is true, but you're allowed to put a full stop after that first part. Yes. <laughs> you can just say, I, didn't, I don't <laughs> like babies, full stop, and then force the other person who's uncomfortable because they don't hear it all that time to sit with that. Because on the other end is usually someone who's struggling so intensely and hears only the second part of the sentence and then goes, I'm broken everyone else is happy, everyone else is loving this journey, and I don't. But if they don't feel that they can talk about it authentically, we're failing other mothers, or in my case, fathers.
1: So if there are mums and dads listening, which there will be, Mm. what would you say to them?
0: I would say, we are desperately trying as a society to sprint away from the village. I have no idea why but society has moved away from larger support systems. We live far away from our families. We feel that we need to do it on our own. I know if you're a parent, you've felt this way. As, as soon as the kid comes, I just want to be by myself with just my husband for a week or two, You know, no, no influences, just us. That is a new concept. The village is what got us here. The support system of having multiple mothers or fathers around to lend a hand, If we go even further back to our tribe days, other women who would help breastfeed give you a darn break, give your nipples a break. We've sprinted far away from that. Our work lives, the amount of juggle that we have, we're consumed by schedules and that makes it harder to have connections outside of our relationship as parents. That makes it harder for us to get together with people. We see our family less than ever before. We live farther away from them. And that makes parenting so much harder. I think we are making it harder for ourselves. So what I would say to parents is, make it your job to create a village. Find the people who you can be honest with. Omit the people who you cannot. Find a network of people who are willing to watch the kids. Watch other people's kids. Force into your calendar, even when you're anxious, dates with other people with children. Invite your family over. Work through your problems with them. The tribe, a network of people who can assist you will make parenting easier and will make your life more fulfilling. I am sure of it. I know how hard it is. I'm giving you this advice and I do not practice it all the time. But the people who have a network of support, who are able to go on dates, who find a way out of the home, who go to tennis practice multiple times a week alone and don't feel bad about it because they have people to help, who find the money, who eat out less just to get a nanny one day a week so them and their partner can connect, who learn to work through the problems of handing their child over, who deal with that separation anxiety, who go to therapy to fix that, are the parents who can enjoy life outside of just parenthood. I really, really, really hope that we find a way back to creating living environments and neighborhood and community that allows us to feel that we can have our children be helped and supported and watched and nurtured by other people that aren't just you. There's too much pressure on modern day parents to do it all and it is failing us.
1: Well, Sean, I want to be part of your village.
0: (laughs) Please, (laughs) you're invited. (laughs) You're in, you're hired. Yay!
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing with me. I just, oh, I've learned so much. You've made me weep, you've made me laugh, you've made me think. And just thank you for being who you are and putting your beautiful spirit and energy out into the world because it is helping so many people. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. How remarkable is Sean? One of my false eyelashes has come off from my tears. He is such an incredible soul. What a brain. What a way of thinking and articulating about the world. Now, Sean's podcast, Come Out Wherever You Are, is about coming-out experience told by people who've done it. And it's available on the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. I highly recommend it. It is a beautiful listen, just like Sean. And for more big conversations like this, follow the Jess Ro Big Talk Show podcast. It means you'll never miss an episode. And if there's someone in your life who you think might enjoy this conversation, why not share it with them? And if you love this episode with Sean, I reckon you'll enjoy my chat with Hugh Sheridan. And I don't label myself anything but human because I can change my mind at any point. And that's what makes humans special. And that's what makes us individuals. And I think so many of my friends have been straight and then they've been gay and then bi or whatever, but I just sort of go, well, you're just human. You can change your mind at any point. And I lean into that. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.